0: We are engaged, as most of you will remember at the present time, in considering the words to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, we began considering this last week, and we saw that it's a a further argument brought forward by the apostle to give us assurance uh, as to our ultimate and final uh, salvation, our ultimate glorification. Now, we saw that he limits his statement, uh, all things work together for good, only to certain people, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It isn't uh, just a general optimistic statement, isn't life wonderful, or uh, isn't the world wonderful, and so on. It isn't that. It's a peculiar, special statement uh, which uh, has reference only to Christian people, to those who have been called saints in the previous verse, in verse 27. So it's important to observe the limit. Then we went on to inquire as to the meaning of this statement. What does it mean by saying that all things work together for good? And we examined it and tried to consider how exactly that comes to pass. We emphasized that there is no limit upon this word all. It means all things. And we saw that it came to this, not that all things do this in and of themselves, because they obviously don't, but God overrules everything for the good of his people. So we saw that trials and tribulations, illness, accident, disappointment, these things can under God's almighty hand be turned to our good and our advantage, and we considered in practice how Uh, This uh, is worked by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Well, now then, we uh, must just add one thing to what we said last uh, Friday night. I say the word all means all. It does really mean everything. It isn't confined only to trials and troubles and tribulations. It is an all-inclusive term. So that we've got to say this that it includes even our falling into sin, even our backsliding. Now, clearly this is a a statement that one has to make very carefully, and yet it is a statement that has to be made, because the teaching is here that everything that happens to the Christian, to this man who loves God and is the called of God according to his purpose, everything, is turned into his ultimate good. Now, never, you see, was it so important to emphasize the fact that this doesn't happen automatically. To fall into sin is always bad. It's never good. To be a backslider is never good. It is always bad. And yet I am asserting that even uh, sinning, falling into sin, or backsliding, comes under this heading. And we can say of it that it is something that because of our relationship to God does work unto our ultimate good and helps even to produce our final glorification. Now, this is taught in many places in the scripture. You will find the statement in Isaiah 43, I think it is, in which God says, I create evil, which means partly that he creates the evil consequences of sin, but also includes this further notion that he controls even evil and can use it to his great and grand purpose of bringing his people to that final glory. Now then, how does this happen? Well, you see, it happens like this. When a Christian falls into sin, God eventually makes use of that in this way. He makes use of it to show the Christian his weakness and his frailty and his fallibility. Self-confidence is always one of our greatest dangers, as I was saying last Friday night. Well, now, this works out in very much the same way, only that it is, of course, a very special case. There are some Christians, I've heard them say it, actually, they always feel that they have no need to ask for forgiveness. They've reached a state in which they no longer even have to ask for forgiveness. And they're a bit troubled about even offering up the Lord's prayer as a part of their own prayer. Well now, the answer to them, of course, is that they're not aware, as they should be, of what sin is and what sin includes. They're suffering from a bit of self-righteousness. They're a bit blind at certain points and they don't see what they're doing. Well now, when a man falls into sin, it pulls him up. It it, it makes him think again. It shakes his self-confidence. And that's always a good thing. He that is down, says John Bunyan, need fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. But when things are going well with a man, he's in danger of uh, pride and of Being uplifted and high-minded, puffed up. But the moment he falls into sin, he again is made to realize what a weak and what a frail, what a poor creature he is. Now, that doesn't say that sin's a good thing. Now, it's a dangerous thing to say, of course. And it makes people say, well, you were obviously teaching them that it's a good thing to sin. Which was, of course, you remember the very charge that people brought against Paul. They said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid is the answer. No, no. It's not an enticement or an incitement to sin. It's just showing the way in which God can use even that to do us good. Of course, that only happens to the Christian. It doesn't happen in the case of the unbeliever when he sins. His whole view of sin is an entirely different when he doesn't believe in sin as such at all. So that it cannot be to his advantage, but God can turn it to the advantage of the Christian. That's part of the way. And at the same time, of course, when we truly repent, having seen what we've done, he shows us that he's ready to forgive us. The prodigal son knew much more about his father after he came back than he ever knew before he left home. He thought he knew before he left home, but he didn't. It was when he was received back, when he saw his father running to meet him, when he was yet a long way off and embracing him. He never knew anything about this before. So, you see, though he was quite wrong in leaving home and going to that foreign land and all he did there in his riotous living, it was all wrong. But he was a very much better man at the end than he was at the beginning. He knew more about Sanji. He knew more about his father. He knew more about his father's love. Now, that's the kind of way in which this works out. And, in other words, it brings the Christian to see his constant need of grace, His constant need of watchfulness and of care. And all that, of course, is very good for us. It's a part of our development, our growth in grace, and in the knowledge of the Lord. So we are able to assert that even when he falls into sin and becomes a backslider when he's restored, this has been for the Christians good. Now there you get a glimpse into this many-sided Grace of God. What a wonderful thing it is that even our defeats can be turned to our good. God takes hold of this thing and he uses it in that way to bring us nearer to himself and to give us a knowledge of himself that we otherwise would never have had. I'm simply arguing, therefore, that this term, all things, really must be taken in all its fullness, not even accepting sin or falling into a backslidden condition. But then I want to go on to indicate this. There we've been looking at the way in which it works, as it were, the mechanics of the thing. But how exactly does God do this? I say God can take hold of these things and use them in the ways that I've been indicating. How exactly does God do that? Because that's the apostle's assertion. We reminded you that some of the versions even state that it is God who does it. In any case, all things don't work automatically. They're worked by God for our good. How does God do this? Well, here are some of the ways clearly. One is that he permits things to happen to us. He permits some of these things to take place for our good. He could have stopped them, but he doesn't. He permits them. He allows them uh, to take place. Now, that's an activity on the part of God. God's permissive will is nevertheless an activity of God. It's a negative one, I agree, but it is a part of his activity. And therefore, sometimes in life, we find things happening to us. We mustn't assume always that it is God who is doing this to us. Now, we tend to assume that, don't we? We say, why has God done this to me? He hasn't always done it in that positive sense. What has happened is, that he has permitted it to happen to us. The classical case, of course, is that of Job, where he permits the devil to try and to test his servant Job. God didn't do those things to him, but he permitted the devil to do so. And it is a very important part of our understanding of the life into which God has brought us and God's attitude and relationship to us. Now, you can think of many analogies which uh, in which this same principle is implied. Uh, if you really want to train a man in any business or profession or any work, uh, time comes when you've just got to take, as it were, a little bit of a risk and uh, allow things to happen to him, and uh, that's the way he's going to learn. If you keep on doing them for him, he'll never learn. So you just allow things to happen in order that he may receive greater instruction. But let me hurry to the second thing. God not only permits things to happen to us, God sometimes does things to us and sends things upon us for our good. Now here is the point at which many people get into trouble. Their idea is, of course, as it's the idea of every child, that a father is nothing but a mass of benevolence and that a father is just a person who's always smiling and always giving out money, always giving it when we ask for it, and any amount of it, with no limit, uh, just uh, some great mass, I say, of benevolence. Children always tend to think like that and uh, feel very aggrieved and hurt uh, when um, anything is withheld from them or when uh, punishment is administered to them. Well, it's exactly the same in this uh, spiritual life. God sometimes does things to us for our good. Take the children of Israel. They're a classical example of this. God not only permitted many things to happen to them, he uh, raised up enemies against them. We are told that deliberately. He uh, sent hornets uh, uh, to trouble them and pestilences upon them. Uh, Quite deliberately. He was doing it for their good because they were his people. Ye only have I known of all the nations of the earth, therefore I will punish you. And he did. He. These are specific scriptural terms. He raised up enemies against them, to molest them and to attack them and to trouble them. And the enemies were not only human enemies, they were these various other ways in which the trials came. But of course, we've got a classical statement of all this in Hebrews 12. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. There's no question about that. And then there is that most interesting statement, which we must never forget in the first epistle to the Corinthians, in the eleventh chapter, in connection, you remember, with the communion service. It's a most significant statement. He says here, He that eateth and drinketh, verse 29, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, which means judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause... Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep for this cause, because they've been guilty of that, That is why they've been ill, that's why some of them are weak, and that is why some of them have even died. It doesn't mean they've lost their salvation, but it does mean that their death has been the direct outcome of this particular failure. Now, this is... Uh, Tremendous doctrine, isn't it? But it's very true. God does this for our good, remember. It's all for our good still. And that is why sometimes when a man won't listen to the gospel and be led by God and the direction of the Holy Spirit, God will sometimes send an illness upon that man. Now, don't assume that I'm saying that every illness is due to that. My first point was that God permits things. But he doesn't always stop at permitting. He may send it upon us. And it's for our good, as we shall see again in a moment. Very well. But then a third way in which he does it is this. He withholds or withdraws his blessings from us. Now, this isn't permitting something to happen to us. It isn't sending something upon us by way of a trial or a tribulation. But it means this that God, as it were, averts his face, turns away from us. And we feel that we're not in contact, we can't find him. This is a method that God uses for the good of his people. Again, the human analogy is an obvious one. It's something that has to be done in practice with children and those who are who are under our care. For their good at times, you either have to look severely at them or you don't look at all at them. You turn your face away. And they're troubled because of that. That's the way of convicting them. That's the way of humbling them. That's the way of getting them to repent. And to admit that they've been wrong. And to admit that they're sorry. And that they're asking for forgiveness and for restoration. That is why sometimes there are periods of dryness and of barrenness in the life of the Christian. You'll find the psalmist's talking a lot about this. They're asking God, when's he going to come back? Why is he like a traveler, like a journeyman? Uh, Why doesn't he show his face? It's their great prayer, show us the brightness of thy face. Look upon us, they say. Why are you turning away from us? Now, this is an experience that the saints throughout the centuries have described and have experienced. It is one of God's ways of doing us good. Now, what I'm trying to say, in other words, is this. That even that experience of a period of barrenness and aridity and dryness of the soul and in your spiritual life can be used to your tremendous advantage. And God does use it in this way. It makes us desire him more. It makes us seek him more. And long more for him. In other words, what we've got to realize is this. That everything can thus be used by God. Even Such periods, people would argue, well, what good can there be in that? What value can there be in a period of dryness and of aridity? Well, my only answer to that question is this. That there is nothing in life which is greater, is there, than the experience that you have when that period is suddenly ended. And when God again smiles upon you. This is something, I say, that is found universally in the testimony of the saints. He sends a period of clear shining, you remember, to cheer us after rain. It was almost worthwhile having the rain and being drenched with the showers to get the experience of the period of clear shining that he sends us afterwards. Now, it's like that, isn't it? This period suddenly ends and you enjoy the nearness and the presence of God more than you've ever done before. Well, these are all things to comfort us. This is the most comforting teaching, this. All things are made to work together by God, and this is one of them. This is a part of it. What appears to be so wrong and so opposed to us is meant and designed for our ultimate good. And then the last thing I would mention is this. That he grants us spiritual illumination and understanding to see what's happening to us. And now that is most essential, of course. Without this, we would tend to be depressed. The devil comes in and says, look what's happening to you. Do you call yourself a Christian? Or he may say, do you say God is a God of love? Do you say you're a child of God? But look at what's happening to you. Look at your position. And thus he tries to create doubt within us and make us grumble and complain. Now, one of God's ways, therefore, of taking every kind of circumstance or condition and using it for our good is that he suddenly pours down the light of his Spirit upon what's happening to us, and especially through a text such as this. And the moment you begin to understand this text, all is well with. you. Now, I could illustrate what I'm trying to say out of my own pastoral experience abundantly. Let me cite but one case. I remember the case of a lady who had been passing through one of these periods of dryness and aridity and was in great trouble. It was partly physical. And all her friends had gone to her, and I say all deliberately because they all had, and some of them were ministers and so on, and they'd all said the same thing to her. They were all trying to make arouse herself. Uh, And all trying to talk in a theoretical manner to her and uh, just uh, say, you see, that uh, doesn't matter what your feelings are like, doesn't matter what is happening in your experience, you know the truth, justification by faith and so on. Well, she knew all about that. She knew that quite as well as they did, better than many of them did, but it didn't help her. Because her consciousness was that she did not now know the blessedness she once had known. Where is the blessedness I knew... Uh, when first I saw the Lord. That was her condition. The condition described there by the poet Cowper. And uh, this kind of talk didn't help her. And it's no use telling just, uh, just telling just uh, such people to pull themselves together, to rouse themselves. That's just what they can't do. And they're right in saying that it isn't the remedy that should, they should be given at that point. Superficial people who know nothing about the depths of spiritual experience, they don't understand this. They live on such a surface level, they don't understand what's happening. But, the way to help such a person, the way that particular person to whom I'm referring was helped, was just this. All I had to do was to say this. Ah, yes, I said. You know, there are periods like that in the lives of the saints. I said, sometimes God, for his own inscrutable reason, withholds his face from us. And she looked in amazement. Is that true? She said, of course it's true, I said. And I gave her many examples and illustrations of this. And the mere knowledge, this is the point I'm illustrating, that God through the Spirit gives us spiritual illumination to understand what's happening. The moment she saw that God sometimes has to treat us in that way for our ultimate good, her problem was already solved. Because she now had an explanation The others were not giving her explanations. And she had no reply to give to the devil. But now she could turn to the devil and say, Yes, the child of light sometimes has to walk in darkness. And he does so sometimes because he is a child of light. God is going to teach him something as the result of this that can only be taught in that way. He will have something in that experience when he comes out again into the light which nothing else in the world could ever bring him to know. And that proved to be Her very experience. Well now, that's an illustration of how God does it partly by giving us spiritual illumination and understanding to know and to realize what is happening. So you say to yourself, I don't understand it. But if it's a part of God's treatment of me, I'm going on. I'm ready to go on even in the dark in this way. I know that it is God who's dealing with me for my good. Very well, there are some of the ways. Well now then. That completes our attempt to explain the meaning of this great statement. Let us move on then to another heading, which is this. How may we know that this statement is true? The apostle says, we know that all things work together for good. I've explained the statement, but how can we know this? Now, you notice that he assumes this knowledge in all the saints. We've had many instances of that, haven't we? He keeps on saying, we know. Well, all I'm concerned at this moment is to ask a question. Do we? Do we know it? Did we know it? The apostles assuming it is a common knowledge amongst all Christian people. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's my first comment about it, but I want to make another comment, and this to me is a most important one, and a most fascinating one, if I may use such a term. You notice here that he says, we know that all things work together for good. But in verse 26 he'd been saying this, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. How do you reconcile the two things? Here is a Christian, in the midst of trials and troubles and tribulations, And he says two things. He says, I know not what to pray for as I ought. And then he goes on to say, I know that all things work together for good to them that love God. How do you reconcile? Well, here is, I think, one of the most wonderful things about the Christian life. The Christian is a man who can be certain about the ultimate when he's most uncertain about the immediate. Now, that's the real secret of this statement. And that is, I would say, the final comfort and consolation that the Christian has. The Christian isn't the man who knows everything, but he does know this one thing. Here he is in trouble, with things going against him, disappointments, all sorts of things going against him. And he says, I'm in such a position that I really don't know what to pray for as I ought. I don't know the what to pray for. We've seen that. He admits that. He doesn't know the what, exactly what to say. And all that he can do is, he emits these
1: groanings
0: that are produced in him by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know what to pray for. He's confused at that point. He's without knowledge. And yet, even at that very point, he can say this. I don't know. I don't know whether I ought to go that way or this way. I don't understand why these things are happening. I don't know exactly what to ask God for at this moment But I know this, that in spite of my ignorance and in spite of everything that is happening to me, that this and everything else is working together for my good. Now, there, I say, is the final comfort and consolation of the the Christian. But you've got to draw this vital and important distinction. The fact that we do not understand what is happening to us should never be allowed to disturb us about the ultimate. Now that's where the devil comes in again. You see, the devil will take up some detail. He'll take your present position. And he'll say, how can you say in the light of this that you are a child of God, that God is a God of love, and that he's going to bring you to that glory? Look what's happening to you. And your trouble is that you can't explain this particular thing. And because you can't explain that, you have to give in to the devil and down you go in depression. Now, the way to deal with the devil at that point, you see, is this. You let him speak, and you say, All right, I'll agree and I'll admit, I cannot understand, I cannot explain this particular incident or detail. But though I can't do that, I am still certain about the whole. I'm certain about the ultimate. I don't understand the mind of God fully, but I do know the purpose of God with respect, to." Now, there, it seems to me, is the whole art of rejoicing in your Christian life. Let me put it again in in the terms of an analogy that I've often used. You can lose many battles and still win the campaign. That's the point. It's the ultimate victory that's safe. It's the ultimate outcome of the campaign that's beyond any question or doubt. You may fail in many a detail. It doesn't matter. It's the ultimate that is guaranteed. And that's precisely that what we have here in this teaching when we take the I know not of 26 with we know of verse 28. Now this is something that we've been, that we'll be constantly having to do in our Christian walk and warfare in a world like this. Don't allow particulars to interfere with the general. Oh, I'm trying to make it plain to you. Let me try a medical analogy for a moment. Don't be too upset by the appearance of particular symptoms if you know that your patient as a whole is getting better and is going on. That's all I'm saying. It's a very poor doctor who gets too alarmed and excited about particulars. He must have a whole view. Now the devil will always try and pin us down to these little particulars and we'll get excited and alarmed. You mustn't let him. Draw a distinction between symptoms and diseases. The whole, the ultimate, the end, is absolutely certain and guaranteed. Don't let the devil upset you about the particular, particular temporary things that may or may not be happening to you. Very well. It's interesting, isn't it, to notice that contrast. We know not, we know. No contradiction. This is this marvelous synthesis of the Christian life. The end, the ultimate, is guaranteed. But as we are getting there, there are all sorts of things we won't understand. And we'll be often perplexed, often, as the hymn puts it, in in woe, in confusion, often sorrow, often woe onward Christians, onward go, that's it. You're not promised that you won't have troubles and trials. That's where the devil deludes people to thinking, you see, that once you become a Christian, all is well, no more any trouble. Not at all. Oft in sorrow, often trials, often woe, often many another thing. But it doesn't matter. Go on, Christians, go on. Face the foe, keep your eye upon the ultimate. Remember who your captain is and the absolute certainty of this ultimate outcome. Now, that's the argument here. Very well, we know this. Now, the knowledge is an absolute certainty. That's what he's saying, we know. He couldn't put it more strongly. It's a categorical statement. There is no question, there is no query, there is no doubt here at all. This is one of those things which is an absolute certainty, without any exception at all. Very well, that brings me to the next inquiry, which is this. On what basis do we have this knowledge? How do we arrive at this knowledge? He says, we've got it, we know. How do we know this? Now, I first of all want to take this in general. You see, there are two points here. We must know how this is true in general. Then the next question will be, how do I know that it's true of me? But we must start with the general first and then go on to the particular application how do we know that it's true to say that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose? Well, here are the answers. One, it's clear teaching in the Scripture, and especially in the promises of the Scripture. That's why I read Psalm 91 just now. Didn't you notice it there? It's there constantly in the statements of that psalm. The promises of God are to his people. They're very definite promises. And, and their true promises. God says that He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. There you are. You can't have anything better than that, can you? And there, that is one of these promises. You've got it abundantly with regard to the children of Israel. God tells them that they're like the apple of his eye. And the apple of the eye is the most sensitive thing in the whole constitution of men. The most sensitive part of the most sensitive organ. The apple of the eye. That's what you are to me, says God to the children of Israel. Well, what more do you want than that? Than to know tonight that you're like the apple of his eye to God. All these promises and statements to the children of Israel are equally true of us and more so, as it were, thank God. Very well, then. Then look at all his dealings with the children of Israel. That's what the Old Testament record is. Look what he did with them. I've already reminded you. He blessed them, then he withheld his blessings for their good. He raised up enemies, then he conquered the enemies for them, and so on. All this is an absolute proof of the way that God is working all things together for good to those that love him. To those who really are his called people. So you see that the Old Testament is full of this kind of thing. And I've just given you one or two quotations, but come along to the New Testament. And there you've got the same thing again. Go, for instance, to Matthew 6, and let me read from verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Now there's an unanswerable argument. If God is caring for those birds in that way, are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? Why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now these are categorical promises that God makes to us. The very hairs of our head are all numbered. Then let me give you one other out of Matthew 10, reading verse 28 and following. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, for ye are of more value than many sparrows. Count it all joy, my brethren, says James in his first chapter, second verse. Count it all joy, my brethren. When ye fall into diverse temptations, he's referring there, of course, to trials and to these various things which come to test us. And it's a part of his essential message in the whole of his epistle. There it is in the second verse. But in verse 12, he puts it like this. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Same idea, exactly. And it's a profound truth. And then finally you've got it, of course, in Hebrews 12. And especially the the emphasis which is put in the 10th verse, where he has been reminding them that they had fathers after the flesh, uh, who verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, there's nothing more specific than that. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. If you don't endure this chastening, says this man, well, you're not children, you're bastards. Now, here is perfectly plain, explicit teaching in the scripture itself, showing us that God causes all things to work together for good uh, to his people, because they are his people. But then add to this. Secondly, take the experiences of the saints as they're recorded in the scriptures. Look at the whole of the book of Job. What's its message? Well, you remember the message of the book of Job, don't you? We are given a summary of it there at the very end. That's the whole explanation, the whole purpose of it all. Job was a much better man at the end than he was at the beginning. That's the great message that is summed up in the 42nd chapter at the very end of the book. And then, don't forget this, that James, once more, takes up that very point in order to apply his message. He says, you have heard of this patience of Job, he says. Well now, he says, you be patient in exactly the same way, because the end of That man was better than the beginning. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Always examine the end. Don't look at the thing as it's in process. Look at the end. Always watch the end. That's the whole trouble with the unbeliever. He never considers the end. He sees the attractions of the wide gate and the broad way. Wonderful illuminated signs. Everybody cheerful and happy. Having a wonderful time. What a contrast with that other way, that narrow way. Yes, but what about the end? Where does it lead to? The wide gate and the broad way lead to destruction. The other leads to life. Life which is life indeed. Well, consider the end of Job. Then you get exactly the same thing with Jacob. You see, Jacob was the sort of man that God had to do many things to him to make a good man of him, as it were. And look at his sufferings and his trials, but look how he ends again. It's a part of the same argument. And look at David himself. Look at the experiences of David. I was saying just now that even sin and backsliding can be turned to the good of the child of God, and I maintain that that is the message of Psalm 51. It doesn't excuse David's sin, the adultery and the murder, and all the rest of it. No, no, all I'm saying is this, that because God is God and we are his children, even David, who's taught something there and his life and experience were enriched. He's a better man at the end than he was at the beginning. These things had to happen to him as a part of his perfection, and they did. But let me put it to you in what is perhaps the classical statement of this particular matter as you find it in psalm 119 take for instance verse 67 before i was afflicted i went astray but now i have have i kept thy word that's verse 67 look at verse 71 it is good for me that i have been afflicted that i might learn thy statutes here's a man giving his experience He said, I've been through it. This is what I say, having come out of it. And then he adds again another word in verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. That's it. Now, this isn't theory. This isn't a man writing a textbook. This is a man giving his experience. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou, in faithfulness, hast afflicted me. And then to cap it all, the great apostle in 2 Corinthians 12. Yes, it took him some time to get it, but he got it at last. My grace is sufficient for thee. Right, says the apostle, I've got it. When I am weak, then am I strong. He'd never known that before. But he had to be knocked down, as it were. He was sent to God using the devil, a messenger of Satan. But it was God's purpose in order to keep him from losing his head, in order to keep him humble and to bring him to see, When I am weak, then am I strong. Now, here are men in the scriptures giving us their experience, relating their testimony, as it were, as to what all this has meant to them in practice. Finally, add to it this the experience of the saints in the subsequent history of the Christian church. And you'll find they're unanimous, unanimous in their testimony. They're all saying in different ways, it is good for me that I've been afflicted. Christian people are generally at their best when they're in the furnace of affliction. When they're being persecuted and tried. Don't we remember the epic stories Of Some of the German Christians during the Hitler regime and during the war. Some of the experiences of the saints in Norway during the occupation during the last war. This is always, look at the mighty story of the Covenanters 300 years ago in Scotland. All the great martyrs and the confessors, they've all been unanimous in saying this. They've never known God as they knew him when they were in the furnace of affliction. Testing times, they say, are healing times. They're growing times. These have been the means whereby God has revealed himself to them in a newer way and in a deeper way. Now, this is not uh, merely the teaching of the scripture. You see, it is something that is supported and confirmed and verified by the scriptural saints and by the saints of God in the church through all the running centuries ever since. Now then, there, I say, we find, in general, the way in which we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, my friend, I'm leaving it at that tonight. God willing, we'll go on next Friday to consider how we may know that in person, but you'll never know it in your own case unless you've really seen the teaching. Have you seen the teaching? Do you see how it's an absolute certainty, this? And we all ought to be able to say, we know that this is a great principle, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Very well, we'll go on, God willing, to see how we may know this in our own experience, and then, having done that, we will go on to this. Why this statement must of necessity be true. That's the end of the verse. Who are the called according to his purpose. It's not only true. It must be true. It's bound to be true. God willing, we'll go on to consider how. Oh Lord, our God, we again come before thee in amazement and astonishment. Thou hast permitted us and enabled us to look into something of the glorious mystery of thy way of salvation. O God, we come before thee feeling utterly ashamed that we've ever tried to pit our little pygmy understandings against such a marvellous way, and that we've ever been confused, or ever been miserable, or have ever listened to the devil and have felt like grumbling and complaining. O God, we worship thee and adore thee for all thy ways, which are so infinitely above ours and removed from them. Oh we rejoice in the fact that thou art our God and that we are in thy hands, and that all things under thy hand are working together for our good, because we are thy people and destined for that ultimate glory. O God, go on, we pray thee to open our eyes and to make these things more and more plain and clear to us, that we may rejoice in thy presence and worthily represent thee and thy great kingdom in a dark and an evil and a sinful world. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night. Throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall see him face to face in the glory, Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.